I remember early on in my career, I, I identified pretty quickly that, I mean, I left school with a pretty high opinion of myself, but the early work stuff was just a disaster. And you see all this work when you're in school and you're like, I want to do this. And then you're doing it in school and you're like, I love this. I want to commit to this, you know, and then you get out there and you have this job and you're like, what the hell is going on? You know, it's just so not what you signed up for. Paul Sayre is a New York-based designer who has worked for everyone from Marvel to Google to the New York Times. He's an expert cover designer. He's designed album covers for bands like They Might Be Giants, covers for magazines like New York Magazine, and book covers for authors like Chuck Klosterman. In this episode, we'll talk about his new book, Two-Dimensional Man, his love of making stuff, and the importance of once having had his design office above a Dunkin' Donuts in New York City. Well, I, I drew as a kid, and, and I don't know why, when I started drawing, uh, and I attribute a lot of it to my mom. She's an occupational therapist, but she definitely appreciated art to some degree. She didn't know a lot about art. She just, I think, probably as a therapeutic thing, understood the value of cre creating, drawing, painting, whatever. So I really think I was, I spent a lot of my childhood, we had a pretty big family, and there were four kids, the three boys, you know, and then there was me in the middle, like, what do you got, you know, <laughs> you know, so I think it was just, I, I got a lot of praise for drawing, you know, oh my God, dear, that's great, you know. And I feasted on that, you know, it was like, it became part of, it becomes part of your identity, you know? What about when you transitioned to paying work? You uh, had an interesting stint as a sign painter. This was in college. And, you know, the art department, the secretary is like, oh, somebody called from the car dealer. They need someone to paint car, car windows. And I'm like, what's that? And they're like, well, just, are you interested? They said they'll pay $90 an hour. I'm like, What? You know, this is coming from somebody who was like selling, trying to sell their platelets at a Akron blood bank, you know, like two weeks before and failing miserably, miserably and working at these horrible university jobs. You know, like on the grounds crew, like all day in the hot sun, replacing divots on the football practice fields, you know, and I'm, I'm like <laughs> grabbing at this thing. And, you know, I, I, through that process, I sort of just blundered into classic, you know, sign painting, lettering. And followed around this sign painter for months and months and much, watching him, you know, trying to figure out what it was that he was doing. And I mean, it took me probably 10 years to make as much as I could have made sign painting doing graphic design. But I was going to school, so I didn't have to do this type of work, you know. The sign painter was clearly a talented and – but I don't know if he loved – it was practical. It was like a delivery mechanism. Like it had a function – that was not high at all. It just was like the way you got letters on a windshield, you know? And it was like, you know, $3,500 loaded, 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 you know, like little stars and, you know, this kind of thing, the whole thing. Yeah, I think you got a, a cheat sheet with the, with the set of phrases that you had. To, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it, it, was, it was a huge breakthrough when I, um, when I was allowed to write the copy, you know? It's like a real honey. <laughs> You know, you're selling used cars, you know. So I'm all about using your hands. So I'm cheering from the sidelines. But picking up a painter's brush, again, it just seems sort of a little too 
treacly or like it's applying a fetish to it that isn't actually in its DNA. You know what I'm saying? People didn't paint signs because of the reason they paint signs now. Right. And I suppose that's fair enough. It's just that I lived through some of it. So I've got a different, you know, take on it um, than someone who just found it now and is doing interesting, amazing things with it because people are, you know, the, someone putting lettering on a window in 1940 and 2017, it's the exact same thing. Like it's serving a function, but now it means something totally different. I mean, silkscreen for me, you know, when I was in school, I was sort of fascinated. I mean, print in general, just seeing multiple copies of it was just the most thrilling thing ever. Probably because you're laboring over a drawing for 12 hours and it's a drawing, you know. Well, this was just like, and it's out there. And there was just something so empowering about that. But, you know, silk screening gave me, I just was like, well, I, I print them. Like, you know, squeezing ink down on a paper and having a poster, even if it's two or three colors later, was just, a, just amazing, you know. But at the time, silk screen was sort of already a dying print vehicle, you know. It was used industrially or practically for short runs, you know, less than 200 of something if you're doing a poster or if it was going on some unusual material. You know, if you're printing on vinyl or something, you know, they can now do that without silkscreen. But at the time, that's what it was function was. So I'm coming out of school, you know, doing this sort of dying thing. And I remember designers at the time going, are you crazy? Like, why would you print your own work? Ew. You know, like graphic designers hand off mechanicals. Someone else does that messy stuff. And I'm like, no, no, it's so, you know, you're doing it in your hands. So doing that and then seeing over time, I taught for years, for the longest time, I would have to force my students to print things. Like it was part of the assignment. You have to print 50 of these. And then at a certain point, I can't remember exactly when, maybe like 2003, 2004, they were already doing it. And it's just time passing, our relationship to things changing. It's a new generation, new group of students. You know, the computer at the beginning was a way to rebel. And then at a certain point, the way to rebel was to do silkscreen. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about this at the start of your career as you're trying to sort of find your voice and you know, what's the nature of those challenges that really defined you as a designer early on? I'm thinking at the beginning of my career and the first couple book covers that I designed, making something that at once you felt total ownership over, total ownership. This is me. This is my work just perfect for this book. Perfect. One of my favorite ones I've ever designed was a Victor Palavin book, um, a great book. You know, one, you read a book and then you're like, I love this author. This, this story is fantastic. I'm totally on board. You know, I would, I would run through a wall for this author. I've never met them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's sort of like reading is sort of like crawling around in someone else's head in a way. You know, there's this connection made that's hard to describe in a lot of, a lot of cases between 
what it is that you just read and that experience you've had and then how you're then going to design. It's just such a pure design challenge. There's no hiding. There's not that many fancy printing techniques or things you can do it. It's like six by nine. You have a story. It's something that is linear. And then you have to figure out what a visual needs to be for this thing. And it informs it in some way. It relates to it in some way. It begins the experience of reading this thing as many times you crack the book open. And so I just love it for that. At the beginning of my career, those feelings about something being totally right in terms of how you're making something, why you're making it, and what did you what did you end up with probably hooked me for the, you know, the rest of the time I would design. This spring and fall, some of the world's top creative minds tell it like it is and explore the deep truths of design at Design Thinkers. Design Thinkers is an annual conference for like-minded people and offers in-depth analysis of trends and best practices in design. On May 29th and 30th in Vancouver and October 24th and 25th in Toronto, join a community of people passionate about creative communications and go deep into the truths of design. For more information, visit www.designthinkers.com. Tell me about your new book, Two-Dimensional Man. You've done a lot of book jacket design, for example. This is an instance where you're doing all of it. As a designer, you're, you're, you're doing everything. And so what is the experience of having that level of control of the storytelling in, in every possible way? An incredibly difficult challenge because this I ended up convincing my publisher to to publish a memoir and not a monograph, which was the thing that was expected, you know, I feel like. 2010, I was working with Abrams designing James Victoria's monograph. We were finishing up and um, Deborah Aronson, the then editor at Abrams, just out of, in passing, was like, where's your book? You know, it wasn't like a formal, like, Paul, we would like to publish your book and here's the contract. It wasn't anything like that. It was just sort of an offhand comment. But of course, I like saw the door ajar and stuck my foot in. And so I, I said, I, I like a memoir, like, like it's about stuff that isn't about the work, but is about the work, you know, like my first car. And she's like, okay, great. Let me read it. And of course there was nothing. <laughs> so I started writing and the first essay I wrote was about my first car. And I always sort of joke, like, my first car is incredibly embarrassing. It was, a, it was an AMC Gremlin. Embarrassing in some ways, but I love that car. And I just think it's like it says, it could say as a way of, like, defining somebody's personality or their trajectory of life, you know, what your first car is, is sort of telling in a weird way, you know. It's, it's like the first big decision you make. So I wrote it, and I gave it to her, and she, and she read it, and I'm, like, super nervous. And she's, she came back and said, oh, the writing is good. The writing is good. I think you can do this. But what does it have to do with design? I'm like, well, I think it does, but I don't know how, if I can articulate it, you know. So she's like, well, why don't you try writing about something else? And again, she was expecting me to write about a project or something, I think. And then I came back with another one. And it was like the same thing. Well, this is also good, but what does it have to do with design? And I wrote three or four essays, maybe even more. And I just kept getting that. I, I eventually had convinced her, but then she was having a hard time convincing the editorial board, you know. And so it just, 
it just was going on and on, and I got busy with other things. And I finally just put it on a shelf and, and get got back to real work. And then cut to like 2015, John Gall, who uh, is a really great book designer that I've worked for uh, and with over the years many times, you know, asked me that same question. You got any book ideas? And I'm like, well, actually, there was this book I started with your publisher. He's now at Abrams. And so I basically sent him what I had written before. And it was it was like, this is awesome. Let's do it. You know, so I don't know if there's a lesson there about persistence or just the time needs to pass for something to sort of seem like it would make sense in 2015 when it doesn't in 2010. You know, I don't know. But that's sort of how it how it came about. But John gave me this choice of working with an experienced editor or somebody totally new. He had two people in mind. And one person was really experienced, had done this, had edited books like my book really successfully, and the new guy. And I was kind of like, I think I want to go with the new guy. Like, just because I felt like I'm, I sort of know what I want to some degree, and I don't want to be pushed around. And I also really feel like someone having energy and going all in on something is way more important in a lot of cases and experience. Gabriel was just, he was able to do, I think, what a really good editor does, which is not be heavy-handed. You have to allow the writer's voice to come out and to help it come out, you know, and to help the author sort of figure out what the book is about. And he really helped me clarify the big picture. So now the, because of Gabriel, the book is very much structured. There's three parts. There's chaos, which is my growing up, and then order, going to design school, and then entropy is the last one, which is me trying to apply as a designer the sense of order I learned in design school to life and just failing miserably because, of course, life can't be designed, but we can't help ourselves, you know. You're describing chaos and order. I, I also, for me, there's something in it about fragility and sort of acceptance of that fragility and, and, and almost not a confrontation of it, but an integration of it maybe with what is otherwise expected in terms of order. And I think about things like, your, your business card and, you know, Dunkin' Donuts and sort of a folding in of things that some people or the typical mindset might say, oh, well, that's not a part of who I am. But there's an acceptance of that in your work. For, for those of you listening, my business, we were above a Dunkin' Donuts and the rent, rent was cheap. It smelled like coffee. There were mice everywhere. It was, sh- it was shitty. It was a dump, you know, but it was cheap by New York standards. So that's the place for me, <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, designers are always trying to make themselves better, you know, look better than they are constantly. We're really good at that. And our clients too. And um, it's sort of an acceptance that is where I am. But you do it with humor and you, you accept the situation, you know, and leverage it. You got to just look at it. It's just like it's life. And, the, you know, this, this is the hand you've been dealt. It's that whole Voltaire thing. You know, it's like this is the hand you're dealt. It's like, what do you do with that hand? Life's a game of cards. I, I actually have my eight-year-olds playing poker right now because it's like it's a good game to learn from in terms of life because, you know, you can have a shit hand and you can still win. 
but you don't have any choice of the hand you're a gift. Yet at the same time, you juxtapose that against your work. And, you know, when you talk about New York Magazine or This American Life or the bands you've worked with, all the incredible authors you've worked with, there's, again, this tension. And I, th- I feel in some ways like this, your book, the covers are a diagram in some ways of this structured, ordered sort of, let's call it respectability on the one hand. And then on the other hand, the sort of fragility, which acknowledges the vital connection between those two things. Yeah, I mean, I think that in the fragility, it gets back to, I think, the whole idea of like problems and things going wrong. I think it's the thing we've been, been talking about. It's like the acronym for my studio. I didn't, I didn't come up with an acronym for my studio that was oops. It just happened to be that. And then my wife pointed it out. And I'm like, oh, well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> what, talk about the worst acronym you could have for a studio. You don't want to think about making mistakes if you're a designer. But, of course, we always do. We all, it's, it's almost nothing but mistakes in a weird way. So there was an acceptance of that at some point. It's like there is a part in the book that I mentioned this. But when I was in design school, I was taught as a modernist, like force-fed gestalt theory and the grid and clarity, order. It's very rigorous. Some people have read that section, have had an extreme dislike from my mentor, Charles Walker, whose program it was. And I'm like, no, no, it was exactly what I needed. You know, it's, it's sort of all tied into the whole narrative of the book, which is basically that the sense of order that you're taught, it sort of flies in the face of what life actually is. You know, life is fucking messy. It's just, it's a mess. Somebody in school said this, and I latched onto it at the time as being like, oh, this is why I'm a designer. And it was something like, if you want a, a reason why you're a designer, just look at the world. It's a mess. It's just unorganized. It's a mess. You know, we're needed. And at the time, I thought, well, that's, that's why I'm doing this. But then that's not why I'm doing it. You know, it's not my job to clean up the world. And the fact that it's a mess is actually sort of beautiful if you look at it in a certain way. What would, It would be, you know... I can't imagine a worse situation than designers sort of having control over everything. It'd be fucking miserable. It'd be a nightmare. Designers in control of everything. It's dystopian vision of hell, like a future hell. Everything's in Helvetica. Every color is like considered for everything. Designers up on stop signs going, that red isn't quite right. You know, like whatever it is. In the context of that, uh, you know, control and a designer who, you know, feels they have to really have their eyes on every single detail of a project. I mean, for you, would you say there's a different way of thinking about that? I mean, you know, when does that kind of chaos enter your work and when does things sort of change? I mean, you know, do you, you know, do you borrow ideas or how do you cross-reference other designers and, you know, do you not use something in one project that you then maybe use later? I'm working on a They Might Be Giants release right now and designed this thing that was all cut paper, you know, for an album title that got changed at the last minute. And it was totally appropriate for this album cover and meant something very specific in that context. And then the title changed to something totally opposite. There's a lyric in the in the in the new album that's my murdered remains, and that's what they were going to call the album. So I'm cutting, pasting, you know, type, cutting it, slashing it, and now they changed it at the last minute to I like fun. 
<laughs> and so we had this discussion. Well, do we just leave it? Do we just redo it with it? And I kind of was like, no, no, it's okay. It's totally all right. It actually works. It's just diff- very different, like what it communicates and like how the context just totally changed, you know, because the title changed. I think you could draw a conclusion about some applied design that it, originality doesn't matter if it's solving a problem or it's solving a need or if it's appropriate or whatever terms you want to use to say it's effective. It's, it's our job as a designer to find our own way within something that ultimately is for somebody else or something else, right? I mean, graphic design is a altruistic activity if you come right down to it. Can you talk about that a bit? What do you mean by it's Well, that, that you're responding to situations typically are not of your making. You know, and again, graph design can encompass self-authorship and all kinds of different ways designers work. But most of the time I'm working, I have a client and there's some situation that exists and then I start working. So I feel like it's not about you if you're really doing it right. I mean, I think most of the time a designer should be invisible. And there are plenty of designers I think you could call out and say, well, they're they're way out of whack. Because every thing they do is about them. You know, it's like me, look at me, look at me constantly. Can you just design a fucking business card and not have it be about you? You know what I mean? Once. So I do think it's, it's sort of altruistic, but I think to do it well, it's also got to be about you. It's got to be personal. And those two things, I feel like that's where the dichotomy and that's what's interesting about design to me. Those two things do not mix, really. They're opposites. But I think they both have to be in there for the work to be any good. What's next? And when I say what's next, I don't mean necessarily what's your next project. But the, really the question is, we all have sort of unexplored territory. We all have things that are in our ear that we just can't shake and we want to explore that territory. You know, what's that territory for you? Like, where do you see your work going? And, and, and again, not your next projects, but your next territories for exploration. I have no idea. I really don't know. You know, goals and having having something to shoot for. You know, people say, what's your dream project? Like, what do you really, uh, I don't know, like the next project, you know? (laughs) They're all sort of dream projects if you look at it a certain way. If you have something to design, then cheers, you know? So I think it's probably just a constantly finding ways to push into places that I'm not comfortable with that are new to me. If that happens, then you can bring it, you'll bring the energy and those little type shaped hearts will pop over your head again. You know, even if you've been doing it for 25 years or 30 years, however long is it going to be? I'm in my early fifties and you see a lot of people your age. I see a lot of people my age that aren't really designing anymore. Some aren't even designers anymore. Or they've gotten themselves into a, they've transitioned into a kind of a thinking role and they're more, you know, managing. I love making stuff myself. And I just want to keep doing it as long as I possibly can do it. Look for Paul's book, Two-Dimensional Man, at your favorite local design bookshop or online. To find out more about Paul and his work, visit paulsayer.com. First Things First is produced by Max Cotter. 
Frontier Media is a part of Frontier, a design office based in Toronto, Canada. We believe that design is more than visual. It's a process of exploration, discovery, sketching, prototyping, iteration, and refinement. That process can help create a better world. Our mission is to help others understand how that goal can be accomplished. To do this, we use design to create better and more purposeful products. We publish a magazine and produce this podcast to explore and celebrate the risks people take in the process of creating things that are original and worthwhile. And we work with clients to help them define their purpose and tell their story. To learn more, visit www.frontier.is. First Things First is recorded in Toronto and Vancouver at the Design Thinkers Conference, organized by our founding partners at RGD, the Association of Registered Graphic Designers, who represent over 3,800 design practitioners, including firm owners, freelancers, managers, educators, and students. Through RGD, Canadian designers exchange ideas, educate and inspire, set professional standards, and build a strong, supportive community dedicated to advocating for the value of design.